0: I studied architecture in college. I remember uh, my professor, Alan Jocelyn, he asked all the students to prepare a presentation on a subject that interested them. So I brought in creme brulee and I was like, I find it really fascinating how eggs behave when you cook them. After that class, he pulled me aside and said, Kenji, why do you want to do architecture? You should cook full time. And I was like, yeah, that's probably true.
1: Welcome to the Meals That Made Me from First We Feast. I'm Adam Richmond, your host and resident gastronaut. The meals that we make, enjoy, and share are the heart of who we are. In this series, you'll hear from 10 guests across the culinary world sharing funny, illuminating, and touching stories prompted by their most meaningful food memories. And maybe you'll even be inspired to make a few memorable meals of your own. So let's dive in. With me today is a bona fide food science wizard and personal hero of mine, Kenji Lopez. An MIT graduate and one-time Knight of the Round Grill at Fire and Ice Restaurant in Cambridge, he is the author of the New York Times best-selling cookbook, The Food Lab, Better Home Cooking Through Science, one of my personal favorites. He also has a new cookbook, The Walk, Recipes and Techniques, not to mention a kid's book whose title depicts my life philosophy, Every Night is Pizza Night. He is now a YouTube sensation with over 1 million subscribers. Not to mention, the dude makes one hell of a smash burger and has some of the best damn uses of baking powder, egg hacks, and crispy roasted potatoes that you will ever see, while sporting some of the loveliest shades of nail polish around. Not bad for a guy who accidentally found his way into the kitchen through a Mongolian barbecue restaurant in Boston. Welcome, Kenji.
0: (laughs) Thanks for having me. You really did your homework.
1: <laughs> of course. I will I, this is that's the coolest part about this series is I think for me you know, I pride myself, I guess I'm sort of food adjacent and uh-huh. I get to speak to the people that inspire me and I think a lot of the people who listen to this haven't worked in the kitchens you have, haven't maybe studied the mother saucers, the primal cuts, but love food and love the art of food creation and getting a chance to speak to people like you and wanting to dive into your stories I hope that there's other people out there listening that are like me, that look up to you, that use you as a point of reference. Now, right off the bat, the first time that you actually came onto my personal radar was like so many cooks, you're kind of like Yoda. You are, (laughs) you know, whether through your videos, your writings, TV appearances, you truly are a reference point and a trusted source. But honestly, Kenji, because of you, I think my pasta is better. My potatoes are crispy and (laughs) pectin-free, and I'm no longer intimidated by using a wok. And in my opinion, I think you have that very rare gift where you can impart knowledge without being pedantic and arrogant. Yeah, (laughs) And you make fellow food science geeks feel seen and appreciated and championed. Plus- You showed me I can make my poached eggs ahead of time. Yeah. I will
0: always love you for that. I learned that at a restaurant (laughs) when I was doing brunches.
1: Well, one thing that I I actually really quite love is that you've probably broken down a chicken or made fried rice or made mayonnaise countless times, yet there always seems to be an element of wonder across your face when these magical things coalesce, when they happen. Mm -hmm. And I can still see the wonder in you as you imparted it. it's like that physics teacher that adds water to potassium and you see the big explosion right, and right, right. they themselves is that true for you do you still find all the wonder in the wonder
0: you show other people i you know i try to and i try to not let myself get bored with things and uh, you know i'm i'm lucky enough that My career right now, I basically, you know, I don't work at restaurants anymore and I'm my own boss. I'm lucky enough to be at a point in my career where I can kind of decide what I want to work on. And usually the things that I want to work on are things where I get to learn myself, you know?
1: Beautiful. So Kenji, I want to talk about what you grew up eating. You grew up in New York City and you said in interviews that your mom, you said, wasn't like a great cook. Fish was a non-starter, but your grandparents apparently lived in an apartment right below you and would send treats upstairs in a basket that you'd pull up through the window, which sounds amazing. (laughs) So I want to know my first question for you. Uh Can you describe for us? A favorite treat that your grandmother made. And I want you to exper- to describe <laughs> the entire experience of waiting to pull up that treat. What was it like when you first saw yeah. it? And what was the treat inside the basket?
0: Well, so we lived on 10J and my grandparents lived on 9J. And we shared one subscription to a Japanese newspaper. So every day my mom would read it. And then me or my sister would lower it down to my grandmother outside the window.
1: Asahi Shimbun?
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, the best treat was when she stuck a $20 bill in there.
1: Yes, sir. <laughs>
0: That's why my sisters and I fought over who got to lower it down. <laughs> The <laughs> but, uh, No, no, proves. you know what? She frequently put in, and this was something actually she, every family road trip we had where my grandmother came also, it was omusubi. So, well, we called it omusubi. A lot of people called them onigiri. Mm-hmm. So basically rice balls. She would make fresh rice balls. She would always season it with salt uh, and MSG and kind of fold it all together. And then she would stuff hers with umeboshi, so pickled Japanese plum. pickled plums. Mm-hmm. And then wrap it with seaweed. And so when those were like, warm they're fine on a road trip when they're like in a tupperware and you pull them out in the middle of the day and they're still kind of room temperature but when like they're made from fresh rice so my, my grandmother was one of those japanese women i mean i think this describes every japanese person but she always had warm rice in a rice cooker on her dining room table at all times like so at any time you could go down there and get warm rice any any hour of the day and so whenever she sent the musubi there were always fresh warm rice um, and she had just stuffed the mumeboshi in and then the seaweed was still crisp because she mm. just wrapped it on there so, yeah, I mean, that's one of my early food memories. And, you know, and that's something I still do with my daughter today. It's like whenever we make rice at home, I don't keep rice all the time like my grandmother did. But whenever we make rice at home, my daughter makes an omusubi with pickled plum in it.
1: So much about that answer to love. As someone for whom Hawaii is my favorite place on earth, mm. when I finally had a warm spam musubi. it Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> you think it's egg, it's furikake, it's rice and seaweed and a bit of spam. And now I'm literally salivating at the thought, yeah. <laughs> apologize to everyone for whom that just became ASMR. But the other thing it reminded me was you talk about cooking very often sushi rice, which I'm assuming is like a medium grain rice. I'm a big fan of Koshi Hikari and Nishiki Kushido, uh, yeah. or Calrose. But I want to say, you always say one and a half times The water to the rice. But I wanna ask you, Kenji, do you not use the knuckle, the first knuckle on the the finger technique? (laughs) But let's fast forward to some of the meals of your early career not the fire and ice Mongolian barbecue in Cambridge where (laughs) you began. But you started writing a column for Serious Eats called Food Lab. Right. Which is inspired by your amazing New York Times bestselling cookbook, which I am a proud owner of, Food Lab. But the first article Mm -hmm. that you ever wrote for that column Correct me if I'm wrong. Was about boiled eggs. You actually wrote correct. two thousand words on boiled eggs, and it ended up being one of the most viewed articles ever on Serious Eats. And that mm-hmm. article was sort of the beginning of a new chapter for you. Correct?
0: Yeah, very safe to say that.
1: And I, I got to ask first of all: Did you choose the boiled egg as the topic, or were you I, like
0: I did? Yeah. And
1: what was it about the mystery of those hen apples that got you?
0: Of the <laughs> rooster bullets. I've always found eggs to be a sort of magical ingredient. You know, I remember watching when I was a kid growing up and watching PBS, I watched Julia Child, I watched The Frugal Gourmet Amen and I watched Jack Papin and I distinctly remember all three of their episodes on omelets. Wow. And you know, and watching them for the first time and you know, and they all take different approaches, but it's still, it's like, you know, there, there's something magical about the way an egg transforms when you cook it. More, it transforms more than any other food, and it's also sort of more sensitive to things like temperature and pH and all these, all these things that some foods are sensitive to, but nothing more than an egg, right? It's like an egg. You can cook it at one temperature and it's, it'll still be sort of golden and liquid and, and a runny yolk. Or you cook it to another one and the yolk becomes chalky. Or you cook it longer and it becomes Green. And, and, you know, and in some contexts, that's good. In some contexts, it's not. But you have this huge range of control over how the egg turns out. You know, I remember when I was in college, um, you know, I studied architecture in college. And so talking about, you know, early mentors, that this is um, a mentor who was not in the food space. But I remember um, my professor, Alan Jocelyn, who has a private practice in Boston. But in one of our studio classes, he asked all the students to prepare a presentation towards the end of the semester on a subject that, interested them that was outside of the scope of you know what we were specifically learning and every other kid in the class did something in either art or architecture or design and I think I completely just misunderstood the assignment either that or it's just like I wasn't interested (laughs) so I brought in creme brulee and I was like I find it really fascinating how eggs behave when you cook them Um, and sort of the precision you need to be able to do something like this because this is like this is basically just egg you know it's like it's cream that's held together by this protein matrix that you find naturally inside an egg after that class he pulled me aside Kenji like, I know, like, you cook part time. And I was like, yeah, he's like, like, why do you want to do architecture? You should cook full time. And I was like, yeah, that's probably true. Um, And so after, you know, of course, after graduating, I did start just cooking full time. But yeah, so at Sirius Eats, i had been writing a couple columns, sort of freelance here and there for Serious Eats. And Ed Levine, the founder of Sirius Eats, I went out to lunch with him. And he's like, Kenji, like, you know, what do you want to write about? what are you interested in? It's like, well, I don't know. Like I've always kind of been interested in food science. You know, I've been working at Cook's Illustrated for a while and sort of the food science element of Cook's Illustrated was what was always most fun for me. It's like, yeah, I've been, you know, food science. He's like, all right, like write a food science column. like, he's like, well, we'll come up with a name for it. And within two days, he, he was like, we'll call it the food lab. And he's like, have the first article, turn it into Aaron, who was the editor, turn it into Aaron next week and we'll run it. I was like, Okay. And so immediately I was like, all right, I'm going to do this on boiled eggs because that's like cheap. You know, I didn't have a budget. Eggs are cheap. They are lots of interesting things to say about them, lots of stuff to experiment on. So I wrote it about boiled eggs and I boiled, you know, a few hundred eggs, different ways, took a lot of photos and then just wrote this thing. I was like, "Nobody's going to want to read like two or 3000 words just on boiled eggs. But it was fun and fascinating for me and really interesting to me. And I think, you know, like we were talking about earlier, I think um, the fact that it was so exciting to me um mm-hmm. sort of came, came across in the writing and that was sort of that feeling when I published that first article and I saw immediately like there's comments you know it's like this is like a new form of writing for me because I was used to working in magazines where you have like an eight month turnaround time and then if anybody responds it's through physical handwritten letters you know I would get <laughs> right, letters right, right. in the mail from people who were asking questions about recipes I wrote Whereas this one, it's like, I just spent a week boiling eggs. I wrote this article. It went up the next day with barely any edits because this is like the wild west of food blogs at the time in you know, 2000, whenever it was 2008 or nine. And immediately I have like dozens of people commenting, asking questions, giving me new ideas for new things. So it was super exciting, you know. And so that idea that I can write on this new online medium and have this immediate feedback and have conversations with real people like that to me was what was exciting about it and so you know with that article I sort of got this idea that like all right whenever I write an article whatever it is whether it's for online or for print my goal is to explain it in a voice of someone who is who just found out something really cool and is excited to share it with a friend that's what I want people to feel when they're reading it like I want them to feel like they're in the kitchen with a friend who's just like this is so cool check this out
1: and I love that. But we must move along to the meals of your biggest moments. Now, people love, mm-hmm. like myself, how you get into the science of the recipes that you share. And my question is, can you describe in detail a meal that represents what your journey has been in the food industry, especially touching on the science of the meal itself?
0: And the science of the meal itself. So, you know, my biggest inspirations are Mr. Wizard. You know, I don't know if you watched Mr. Wizard's World when you were a kid.
1: Come on. (laughs) Come on. The guy. uh, Don Herbert. The guy skateboarding down Lombard Street in the beginning? The
0: TV show, Mr. Wizard? Yeah, the TV show, Mr. Wizard. Uh, It was on on Nickelodeon. Yeah, Yeah, of course. (laughs) Mr. Wizard and, well, MacGyver. But a lot of people have this sort of false notion that there's this contrast between science and art or or science and humanness. And I think the opposite. Science is just a tool, right? It's a, it's a way of sort of looking at the world and understanding things. But understanding science actually, I think, allows you to be more expressive and also allows you to be, you know, a more adaptable cook. Um, and so, you know, so my goal with food science is always to explain it in a way that people understand it, but also try and explain it in a way that helps them on a practical level without being sort of pretentious. Um, So my most popular recipe of all time, I'm pretty sure, is this pan pizza recipe, this pizza recipe that you bake in a cast iron skillet. And so when I was working on this recipe for this pan pizza, my goal was to come up with a way to make dough and to stretch dough that was like completely foolproof. So part of it is that it relies on the, the no need technique, you know, the one that Jim Leahy made famous. Um, Jim Leahy and Mark Bittman made famous in The New York Times in 2007. Like Sullivan
1: Street Bakery. Yeah, yeah. It's,
0: a, it's actually, you know, it's a very ancient technique, but oh. yeah, it became super popular when uh, Jim and Mark Bittman showed how to do it. Um, and essentially what you do is you take flour, yeast, salt, water, mix it up in a bowl. You don't need it at all. You just kind of mix it up. And the idea is that as you let it rest... Because it's a very hydrated dough, there's a lot of water in it. So as you let it rest, there's enzymes in the flour that break down large flour proteins into smaller pieces. And those smaller pieces can then sort of link up more easily to form the gluten network. You know, gluten is that network of protein that gives bread its sort of chewiness and its structure. And, and the you to...
1: biggest enemy in Los Angeles, apparently.
0: Yeah. <laughs> but you were saying gluten. But it also, it's also what allows you to stretch out pizza dough without tearing it, you know. So there's several ways you can develop it. You can develop it by kneading, right? And that sort of tangles up the proteins and, and creates this network. But the no need method, you don't have to do that. You rely on the power of enzymes to break down the flour into smaller pieces. And then just the action of the yeast creating bubbles and sort of the bubbles that move around in the dough does the kneading for you. Mm-hmm. And so what you do is like, you leave it overnight on the counter and you end up with this really easily stretchable, relaxed dough.
1: I told you, you're like the mustachioed food Yoda, man. <laughs> you're You're like teaching jedis left right and center by the way does kenji have a favorite style of pizza
0: yeah i mean new haven well my earliest pizza memories obviously are from new york getting you know getting slices pizza town too was the one i used to go to upon uh used to be on like i think 115th and broadway something i like close now but um but whenever i went up to boston with my dad or whenever we went skiing we you know we, my dad loved skiing so we would go skiing a few times a year in the winter we would always drive up north to massachusetts or vermont um and on our way down, we always, always stopped at either Pepe's or Sally's or, or Modern. Um, and so, yeah, getting in one of those like Pepe's booths, um, getting a, a pitcher of birch beer, uh, and getting it Fox and Park. Fox and Park birch beer. I have beer, yeah. it in
1: my house. Oh, I nice. Have Fox and Park in <laughs> my house right now.
0: <laughs> and then, uh, you know, the, the way they cut their pizza there, they, they're just completely haphazard with the slicer. And so you end up with all these like weird yes. little triangles in the center. And I love that, that like you had your slice of pizza and then you had these like random shaped scraps, polygonal scraps that were just left over in the middle that you could pick at at the end. Um, but yeah, New, New Haven style pizza, I think, I think is uh, easily oh, my favorite. I
1: love you. You <laughs> warm both the cockles and the subcockle region of my heart. Kitchen. Thank you. All right. We'll take a little break and have a word from our sponsor. All right, Kenji, I want to talk about the meals of your heart. Now, you recently transitioned to becoming kind of a head chef yourself, though I know you initially began as a consultant in the creation of your sausage restaurant Mm -hmm. in San Mateo, first hall, a decision that you jokingly said was perfectly timed considering you had a six month old at the time. (laughs) And you said that the decision to start a restaurant while having a six month old nearly destroyed you. Yes. But you've been really vocal about addressing something that I've experienced, the sort of toxic machismo that permeates so many kitchens, including the ones I myself have Mm -hmm. worked in. And you wanted to address this sort of abusive culture that's almost been a sick rite of passage in so many kitchens. So you established a no cursing, no yelling, no public dressing Mm -hmm. down law of the land so that nobody felt destroyed or discouraged as they often do in those environments. But that is not the only way that you wanted to address modern chef culture. You've said many times before that you advocate for chefs and food aficionados to show their audience their mistakes. Mm-hmm. And in the process, not always just present perfect idealized dishes every time they cook. Right. Because that's just not realistic, especially for the home cook. So my question is... What has been a meal that you have messed up in an epic way that you have unapologetically shared with your audience so they can see what errors can happen in the process?
0: (laughs) Well, there was a time I was making um, a pizza for my YouTube channel. And and I did that thing. You know, I mean, I've made... I don't know, thousands of pizzas in my life. Like I used to literally make pizza for a living, for a paycheck. And even someone who's done that, like every once in a while, something goes wrong, right? Especially when you're working at home and you're kind of like in a less controlled environment than at a restaurant. And so I had that thing where I was like, I stretched the dough, I put it on the peel, I was blabbing a little bit too long. And so the dough kind of stuck to the peel. And so when I went to put it into the oven, half of it stuck. Right. Which I'm sure has happened to anybody who's ever made pizza. That's happened to them. Yes, indeed. <laughs> and my initial reaction when that happened was like, oh, God, I can't use this video. That, that was like my gut reaction. I can't use this video. And then just right after that, I was like, no, it's like, you know, the whole point of this thing is to like be casual and to be human because there's so many shows where chefs are presented as being inhumanly perfect. (laughs) And so, yeah, and so I very quickly thought it's it's still pizza. It's still going to taste great. People will appreciate seeing a messed up pizza and how to sort of rescue it and how it's still going to taste great. And you can still use it to (laughs) to feed your family and everyone's still going to enjoy it. And so, yeah, I mean, that one, and of course people called me out on it, but I think most people in the comments of that video, at least the reaction was like overwhelmingly positive. It's like, well, thanks for, yeah, thanks for showing this. Like You look at shows where... Even like short, you know, one minute long TikTok videos where it's like you get that perfect cheese pull at the end. It's like you didn't do that all in one take or especially shows where, you know, you have like the super fancy cameras and slow motion shots and you're at these Michelin starred restaurants and you make it seem like, you know, it's it's this sort of fetishization of chef culture that I think actually is. Relatively toxic for, for the industry because it, it places chefs on a pedestal. And then and, and when you then place them on these pedestals and make them seem like these perfect gods, you know, that translates into them, I think, eventually can translate into more bad behavior in the kitchen. Go off, King. Go off, King. <laughs> and you'll see people saying, well, you know, and especially a lot of cooks who are sort of in it at the moment saying, well... You know, if they didn't do that, the food would not be perfect. Like the reason you get three Michelin stars is because like you can't get three Michelin stars without treating your, your workers this way. First of all, I don't think that's true, and there are counterexamples to that. But more importantly, it's like if you have to verbally or physically abuse people in order to get a Michelin stars, then why do we care about Michelin stars? You know, it's like, is it is it worth it? It's like, why is that a decent trade-off? Like, why is treating people poorly a good trade-off for some, you know, made up rating by a tire company, you know? <laughs> That, that's my feelings on that. <laughs> I love
1: that you champion the role of kindness mm-hmm. in that. And I think that's what makes your videos and your approach to food so approachable. And that's actually a perfect segue into where I want to go next, which is about the meals of your dreams. And I want to tease our listeners a little bit and get them excited about what you're working on next. So I'm asking you now, can you give us a little bit of a sneak peek (laughs) and share a few dishes you're thinking about Featuring on your YouTube channel the next few weeks. I know you were talking about a second children's book. Mm-hmm. Give us a little bit of where our own Culinary Mr. Wizard <laughs> is going.
0: My next cookbook, the idea I've had is to write a book about yoshoku. So it's like a Japanese food inspired by the West. So a uh-huh. lot of Japanese home cooking is inspired by Western dishes. So dishes like katsu, dishes like curry, curry rice, um, nikujagu. Like the, all these dishes that are now sort of a staple part of Japanese cuisine and the kind of thing that actually I grew up eating. Like my mom made a lot of that kind of food when I was growing up. You
1: no, know, I love the East and East West sort of approach and the showing the embracing of one another's culture, as opposed to further reinforcing the divide. Before I move on to our final rapid fire segment, is there a particular Japanese dish that Westerners need to embrace more, in your opinion, that you feel could really fly here? That Because I've seen like yakiniku is like their version of Korean yeah, yeah. barbecue. But is there something that you wish, like I wish I could find okonomiyaki? Uh-huh. Yeah,
0: okonomiyaki is great. Especially,
1: yeah. like, especially Hiroshima-style okonomiyaki. I'd love to see that more. What would you love to see more from that palate that you'd love to see Westerners embrace a little more?
0: There's two things. There's korokke, which are Japanese-style croquettes that has got to be one of my favorites that i don't see that often here and then um hambagu so hamburg steak it's like a Salisbury steak right so it's like you take it's yep. like an individual meatloaf essentially that you <laughs> you fry and then in in japan it will either have well, what they call demi-glace which is sort of like a ketchupy red wine sauce or like a mushroom sauce but that you know that that i really love my daughter loves it it's um it's easy to make
1: all right so now we come to our rapid fire segment We always like to leave our listeners with a little bit of a rapid fire where you answer a bunch of questions telling us your favorite blank. And then I always tailor one little final question for our specific guest. And it was tough because between the one that I'm ultimately going to give you and how does Kenji make a great pb and I'm sure there's probably some scientific ratio or the toast must be at 76 degrees or something like that. But we'll talk about that when we go out to eat in Seattle. So are you ready? Here we go.
0: Best pizza topping. Pepperoni. The kind you know, cup and char pepperoni.
1: Absolutely. When it catches the oil.
0: Yeah. Grease chalices is my Beautiful. friend out of called them.
1: Ooh, <laughs> I'm stealing that. Best vegetable to eat raw.
0: Snap peas in season.
1: Lovely. Favorite cookbook of all time.
0: And Jacques Pepin's um, Complete Techniques, which is not really a cookbook, but I, I think it counts, right?
1: Yes. Especially from him. Favorite condiment. Mayo best dip for french fries
0: uh mayo <laughs> i had a feeling i knew it i
1: knew it i knew it i wish i could have laid odds on that i would have done better with that than i have on crypto all right favorite eating city
0: chiang mai chiang mai
1: wow <laughs> okay deep cut favorite eating country thailand okay favorite fast food item
0: yeah the, uh, the quarter pounder and cheese from mcdonald's now that they they reintroduce fresh beef and they cook it to order and it's yeah surprisingly good
1: Favorite kitchen appliance.
0: Mortar and pestle.
1: What is your favorite song that you like to cook to?
0: Let's say drive my car, first song off of rubber soul right?
1: Wow, that's an excellent one. I can't really see people cooking to like I'm behind <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> um, okay, and so here is the question just for you, Kenji. We almost always see you being asked to do things with eggs, steak, or burgers at every TED Talk, Google cooking segment, and filmed appearance you do. As good as those are, if you had to pick one that you could never do a segment on again, which would it be and why?
0: I would eliminate steak because it's the it's the least democratic of those foods. <laughs> you know, bur- burgers and eggs everybody gets. You know, steak is like a is a special occasion food, I think.
1: Excellent. Ladies and gentlemen, the man, the myth, the legend. Kenji Lopez, thank you so much. Thanks
0: for having me. <laughs> thank you so
1: much, man. It has been an honor. Thank you for giving us of your time. I know how busy you are. I know how much stuff you have going on. Do not forget to pick up these amazing cookbooks, by the way, and pick them up because they're so heavy. They'll help you burn off the calories of that which you cook. Obviously, you have The Food Lab and... It's just—I guess I could call it a sister book. Ones black,
0: ones white. Yeah, we designed them to look nice together.
1: Well, they do, and they look great on my shelf, which I had to reinforce <laughs> for the sheer weight of them. The walk recipes and techniques—amazing books, amazing illustrations, made by an amazing guy. Thank you so much for giving us of your time and of your talent and of the meals that made
0: you, sir. <laughs> Thank you so much.
1: Thank you guys for joining us for The Meals That Made Me. We hope you enjoyed this career-spanning interview with the legend Kenji Lopez and that you are inspired to dive deeper into the meals of your childhood, your mentors, your travels, and the meals that continue to take you places now and into the future. Join us next time when I talk with the legends from the iconic New York-based collective Ghetto Gastro about their message, Bronx to the World and the World to the Bronx, The Wavy Waffle, and their brand-new cookbook. This podcast is produced by First We Feast in collaboration with Complex Networks. Our host is me, Adam Richmond. Our executive producers are Chris Schoenberger, Nicola Lynch, and Justin Bolas. Our head of podcast production is Jen Stewart. Our supervising producer is Shiva Bayat. Our senior producer is Jocelyn Arum. Our associate producers are Nina Pollock and Catherine Hernandez. Our production managers are Shamara Rochester and Natasha Bennett. Our recording engineer and sound designer is Andrew Guastella. Thanks to the team at BuzzFeed. For more First We Feast content, head to youtube.com slash firstwefeast or at firstwefeast on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. If you enjoy these interviews and you want to hear more, then please drop a five-star review and we will see you next time on The Meals That Made Me.